Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast and the Rorima Expedition special features. You know, Rorima is where Arthur Conan Doyle's famous book, The Lost Worlds, is set. And you can totally imagine a dinosaur appearing. A remote location expedition is an exceptionally complex thing to organize and run. The prow is like the feature of the wall, just like... Only 3% of the Earth's surface is covered in rainforest. Uh, it's one of those trips that doesn't, doesn't kind of seem real. I've never done a big wall before and I've always kind of wanted to, but it's like finding a decent partner or team. In conversation, I only catch about half the words. <laughs> I'm not sure if I understand the Guyanese or the British better. <laughs> I've just been worrying about the snakes and the anacondas and the river crossings. And I'm kind of looking forward to it being hard in a way, just like a bit of an endurance test and see how I do. There are so few areas in the world like this forest that we're going into. Like my whole life in a way has been moving towards being able to do expeditions such as these. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast, and the seventh and final episode in our Rorima Expedition Specialist series. This final conversation is with Anna Taylor. Now, if you haven't listened to the other six episodes, then I would definitely recommend that you do so, because this final episode will not make sense without them. We've documented this expedition in film and photograph and podcast form uh, from the moment that we landed until the moment that we left. And the podcast series starts with the journey uh, in Georgetown before any of us have even taken the plane to travel into the jungle. And I don't want to say too much more about this episode other than Anna had no expedition experience before coming into this and over the course of the trip really warmed up to these kinds of conversations. So it was a real joy to end the expedition podcast series with an extremely candid 90-minute conversation with Anna. First things first. As I asked the boys to do on the summit yesterday morning when I spoke to them. Can you describe your surroundings? Right now we are back in the same hotel in Georgetown that we stayed at before we went on this expedition and the room we're in is or what was the faff room before we set off. So last time I was in here uh, the bed was out of the way. We had about 30 bags, probably more, all the haul bags, all the stuff that we needed to pack. We spent about 12 hours in and out of here getting stuff ready. Um, yeah, now it all looks a little bit different four weeks later. It does, yeah. It's not quite the jungle, is it? No. It's a bit surreal to be back somewhere where there's like TVs and fridges and things aren't covered in mud. 
It's very strange. <laughs> yeah. And obviously we've done film interviews over the last couple of weeks, but the last time I spoke on the podcast formally, formally, as formally as it can be, was in Wailang, which is like three days into the trek. And you told me that you've listened to the Wailang podcast and also the first podcast that we did in this hotel. So what's changed? Uh, well, uh, well, everything's changed, <laughs> basically. Um, yeah, I listened to the first bit of the Wireline podcast yesterday. Um, and I kind of have to keep reminding myself that Wireline was actually only day three in the jungle. So it was right at the beginning. It, it doesn't really feel like that because it, it, it always, in my head, it feels like we were at least a week in. But in reality, we weren't at all. It was still just the beginning. And uh, it was funny listening to it back and listening to all my answers because at that point I kind of thought that, you know, I've been in the jungle for three days now, I kind of know how things work. In reality, I hadn't got a clue about anything about what was coming. Um, I was still completely naive. Um, and then the other podcast, the one that we all featured in, that we recorded here in this hotel before we left, I listened to that this morning. Uh, I woke up at 5.30 because I can't get out of the jungle timings, unfortunately. And uh, I ended up listening to that because it, it was pretty surreal because I remember thinking when I woke up in this hotel last time, it was the morning that we drove to the airbase and then we flew over to Philippi. And I was thinking the last time, the next time, sorry, I wake up in a bed, we're back in this hotel when it's all over. And finally, that moment seemed a whole world away at the time. And then suddenly, I was actually living it. So it was really weird, but amazing to listen back to the podcast of the things I was kind of thinking and feeling at that time, which feels like a whole year ago, not just a month, really, with everything that's happened. Um, so yeah, it's pretty surreal. <laughs> and what do you think, you know, three day into the expedition, Anna, didn't know? that now you know? Oh, wow. So many things. Um, I mean, the, the first part of the trek in the jungle that we did, the, the first probably over a week, um, I mean, it was pretty tame, really, compared to what happened later on. The weather was being exceptionally kind to us. And while, you know, there was still mud and there was still insects, and in some ways it was the hardest time for me because... I was kind of finding my feet in the jungle and getting used to like living without any facilities and stuff like that, being the only girl on the team and I didn't know any of the porters and we were a massive group and they were all male and then there was me. Um, so that, that, that was kind of hard and that only got easier from, from then on. But um, in other respects, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have a clue what was to come in terms of the ground that we were going to cover, which got steadily much, much harder from sort of from leaving Wyoming. The next two days we crossed the plateau and then from there it started getting steep and the terrain got worse and the mud got worse. And, uh, and then obviously we ended up in base camp a few days later. And then I think for me, the expedition is kind of split up into three parts. There's like the trek from Philippi to base camp, which was relatively tame compared to what happened next and then I think the toughest part for me was the second part which was from base camp to advanced base camp just when the weather turned on us suddenly it was cold 
and the terrain got it, it's hard to describe how bad it is without having experienced it but like vertical demarring up mudslides is probably all that needs to be said um, and then everything that happened on the wall as well with um, there are a lot of things and I guess I'll probably go more in detail later on but um, in, in terms of weather and logistics and camps and stuff like that just things that I couldn't ever really expected because um, I just didn't have any knowledge of that situation um, so yeah looking back now to round all that up in Wailang I didn't have a clue about anything still <laughs> No, that's ace though, because I, I think that's a perfect way to stage it. We'll, we'll split it into three, essentially. Um, and as is often the case with expeditions and people that go on them, the body, the human mind rather, has this amazing capacity to take hardship and remove the horrible memories and turn it into experience and resilience. But looking back on the jungle, which is now... You know, stage one is two and a half weeks ago. Um, what are the overriding memories? The overriding memories are only good things, really. Um, I think, I mean, I, I've still got the, the harder parts in my head from a bit later on in the expedition. We can go into that later, maybe. But um, from the jungle trek itself, things I remember are... Um, some of the, the beautiful, beautiful places we ended up. Like on the very first day, we had our first lunch stop beside this big pool that um, there was kind of like a gap in the canopy above it and had light streaming onto it. And everyone, some guys went in for a swim and I could wash my hair in the water and stuff like that. That's a pretty good memory. That's the first time into the trek that we all kind of sat down as a team and things took stock of where we were. And uh, things like, I got up one morning, I can't remember what day it was, and there was a little uh, buzzing sound just outside my hammock, and there was a tiny little hummingbird that was just flapping around there, and it stayed there for a while, kind of looking at me. Um, yeah, and swimming in the rivers, uh, all the beautiful places that we walked through, uh, things like watching the, all our local friends building tables and furniture every time we got to a camp and being amazed by the things that they managed to do just with what they found in the forest yeah only the bad stuff fades very very quickly because it's not that memorable you, and one thing I kind of learned is it's not worth dwelling on a bad situation at all you just need to move on from it deal with it as quickly as you can in the best way that you can and then you need to move on because in the next hour or the next day things are going to be significantly better and you'll move on to another amazing moment and forget about all the bad stuff. Yeah, because from from my perspective and the team's perspective, because obviously everybody talks, right? That's what we all do. And everybody was saying, bloody hell, Anna's adapting to this incredibly quickly. She seems totally unfazed. Were you really as resilient as you came across or were you having to talk to yourself quietly? Um, hmm. I think I think I actually was quite resilient, um, more so than I thought I would be, to be honest. Um, yeah, it. The, the first couple of days were were obviously the hardest, just getting used to the situation we were in. But I think it's kind of hard to describe. But I was so out of my depth that 
I've kind of gone past the point of actually worrying about much. Um, and I kind of gave in to the fact that, okay, this is a whole new situation. This is a whole new way of life. You've never done this before, um, but you're here for a month. So your own choice is to just adapt to it and enjoy it. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of the mindset that I had from the start and that I tried to stick with throughout the whole trip. Um, and I think it, it, it did actually work pretty well. I don't, certainly in the, the first week or so of the jungle trek, um, there were no moments genuinely where I thought that this is really hard. You know, I kind of wish that I wasn't, I mean, I never actually wished that I wasn't there, even when it got really tough later on. But um, I, I genuinely did really enjoy it. It was nice trying such a different way of life than what I was used to. Yeah, and then obviously, as you've said, phase two ramped up a little bit. Yeah. You know, from the moment we got to base camp, basically the rainy season started and that was that. What was base camp life like and how did you take to it? Yeah, base camp life was kind of like a harder version of jungle trekking life. Um, in the sense that our camp was, it was kind of similar in a lot of ways. It was a hammock camp and we had a little um, sort of living area with a table and a bench and had a tarp on top of it. And, uh, but it was just, it was a little bit worse than the camps that we'd been in previously. I think that the camps, the first few that we had were pretty amazing. Um, the weather was really good at the time. So we were, everything on the jungle floor was, was totally dry. You were just walking around on crunchy leaves and nothing was really that muddy. Um, and the trees were less dense. You know, we had our hammocks hanging up from really sturdy trees. It was all pretty good. Um, yeah, I'm glad for that. Yeah. He seems to just hoover a metre and then stop. <laughs> Go for it. Um, yeah, where was I? Hammocks hanging Hang from trees. Yeah, hammocks hanging from trees. Um, yeah, basically, as we got further into the jungle, the standard of camps kind of deteriorated just with the ground that we were on. You know, the terrain was worse, the mud was higher, um, the trees that we were hanging our hammocks from turned into more like twigs than anything else, and it was all just getting a bit harder to make everything work. Um, and then our, our base camp was basically at the worst end of that. Um, we were kind of high up, so it wasn't as warm as it had been it was the first time that I'd started wearing coats to go to bed which is something I did for the remainder of the trip um all our hammocks were kind of we were on a bit of a ridge line um so our hammocks were kind of gradually going uphill from where our uh, living area was and our living area was I mean it was okay but the ground because it started raining then the rainy season had begun and the mud was getting pretty bad. And because we stayed there for, I think over a week actually, maybe not quite that much, but we were there for quite a few days. And uh, when we arrived, there was, I think, there's all of us and there were all the porters. So there's a lot of people, I can't remember the exact number at that was, point, you know. I think it's 21. There's 21 at that point, which then got a bit lower when some of the guys went back to Philippi. But 21 people trampling around a really tiny camp in the jungle when it's raining it gets really muddy really really fast and um in the previous camps i'd been just about keeping on top of staying like really pretty clean you know I, I, you could clean your feet and hands every night and 
all your dry stuff would actually stay dry and all your bags were clean and stuff like that. And the situation really started to deteriorate at base camp. Um, it was kind of like, you know, going to bed and your feet were still covered in mud and you'd wake up and you were a little bit damp because it pissed it down in the night and your tart wasn't rigged quite correctly and everything. Your sleeping bag was a little bit wet and then you'd get up and you'd have to put these muddy jungle boots back on, which was probably the worst part of that whole camp. Um, putting those boots back on in the morning that were still like totally sopping wet, freezing cold and still covered in mud from the past day. But you had to put them on to go anywhere. I just ditched wearing Crocs at that point because if you tried to wear those, the mud would just go straight into your socks and it was awful. Um, and it was, it was the point where I sort of gave in, in a way, to the just basically disgusting 24-7 and never really getting all the mud off and just accepting the fact that I wasn't actually going to be very clean until God knows when. Um, so yeah, base camp, it, it definitely got considerably tougher started living there than it was in the previous ones and and from there it just got harder with this lime forest in phase two i guess yeah totally so can you describe we've done this in a couple of the previous episodes but can you describe from your perspective what that slime forest was like to travel through and the swamp above and heading into advanced base camp yeah i can uh do you want me to do the whole journey from yeah 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 because yeah. it's how many parts was it uh, try and remember them all it was basically it's <laughs> a bit of a quest in itself to get from our base camp to our advanced base camp which by the way still isn't actually at the bottom of Arima, <laughs> which, <laughs> which was a depressing thought at the time but um yeah anyway so the base camp that we had is at the bottom well not quite the bottom but low down on it's called the shoulder of Arima which is this massive uh, kind of shoulder-shaped ridge line that goes all the way to the bottom of, not quite the bottom of actually, the main cliff where the climbing starts. And um, I don't know the exact altitude, but it's, it's way higher than Ben Nevis. So, you, you know, you're pretty high up. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a total adventure to get from base camp to advanced base camp. I don't quite know what the distance is. It's probably not as far as I think, but the terrain is something else and it kind of splits down into I think four or five parts. Um, so basically, uh, you start off straight out of our base camp, you've got five or six sections of fixed ropes um, that Waldo, Wilson and Leo managed to rig up I think on our first day. And basically, they take you up these nearly vertical sections of mudslide. Um, some are like little waterfalls with, with mud coming down. And it's, um, I think the, the first couple of days, because it hadn't rained that much, it wasn't awful. But once we stayed there for a week and people were going up and down every day, like the floor of the camp, it deteriorates. and becomes considerably harder to get up. And uh, if, when you add torrential rain into that mix, it <laughs> just gets even worse. So it was like a good, I mean, Waldo was doing it super fast, but for me it was probably about an hour, I reckon, from base camp to the top of these fixed ropes. And we were fully Gore-Texed up, helmets on, harnesses on, all your climbing kit. We were getting up these ropes with you know, the same GMAR system that we ended up using when we were on the wall. And uh, it's, it's pretty hard going, to be honest. <laughs> um, it, was, it was fun the first time I did it. 
because it's like a bit of a novelty, you know, you're like a kid, it's quite fun to get covered in mud and play this game where it's a bit hard going, you get to the top, you're really happy and then you go back down, but then you realise uh, you've got to do it another five or six times because we needed to get all our shit from base camp all the way up to advanced base camp. And while it's fun without a bag on, once you add a heavy bag into that mix, it just becomes absolutely miserable. And uh, there are a few moments where, to try and describe it, you're on a fixed rope, your jumars, you can barely move them because they're so encrusted in mud. Uh, rain is like pouring down on your face from above, getting into all your jackets because you, know, you, can't, you can't stop it. Um, you covered head to toe in mud. Um, every time I tried to move my hair out of my face, I get like a massive smear of mud right across my eyes. Um, and you've got a really heavy bag on your back that is dragging you back down the ropes. And uh, there's a lot of vegetation around that area. So of course the bag gets stuck on every single branch and you, you try and make a movement up and then your bag catches and pulls you back down. And you're like wrestling with trees and vines and it's all, it's, it's pretty intense basically. It's hard to describe unless you've actually done it. Um, but, but that's quite a way to uh, wake up in the morning. <laughs> So once you've done that, um, about an hour of mud wrestling, you get to the top of the fixed rope section, and then from there, it's quite a long way. I think this next bit is the longest section in distance. Um, and it's essentially, a, I think if you took all the vegetation out, it would be a really, really sharp bridge line. It drops off quite horrifically on both sides. Um, and you're going really, really steeply uphill. Um, so steep that at some point you're actually using all fours and you're physically climbing up between roots and trees. Um, the ground is horrendous. It's, um, you know, it, it's just really, really thick, deep mud. And there's tree roots everywhere. Um, there's a lot of holes in the ground you've got to be careful of. And you kind of wrestle your way up this ridge for about probably another hour, I reckon. Um, and then there's one more fixed rope, which was a bit of a pain in the ass because you had to kind of crawl through these uh, tunnels of tree branches. And that was a good one for getting your bags stuck on. And uh, yeah, it carries on in a similar fashion for quite a while. And that brings you out at the, um, the famous slime forest, which is a pretty interesting place. Um, the first time I went up, um, I was with Leo and Dan, and I think we were the first of everyone to actually go through the slime forest. The guys had been up to a slightly lower point um, a couple of days previously. But we were the first to go through there. And uh, so there wasn't a trail. And going through the slime forest without a trail was one of the most weird experiences in my life, I think. Um, it, it does what it says on the tin. It's a forest, you can imagine, with like quite little trees um, that are genuinely covered in this weird slime and I haven't got a clue what stuff's made out of, I don't think any of us do, but it's kind of like something that you'd get in a weird sci-fi alien film, it's, you know, it looks like it's on another planet, everything is a really weird colour, the trees are dripping with water and this slime stuff and every time you grab a branch your hand kind of squelches all the way through it, it's really weird. Um, and the ground is is really bad, again, funnily enough. Um, this, <laughs> the holes in the slime forest are awful. There's like, the ground is kind of like tree branches that converge, and if you step on the right part of them, 
they'll take your weight and you can move on. But if you don't, you go down these holes, which can uh, differ from just being sort of ankle high to some, I think I got one that went all the way up to my hip once. Like they're, they're pretty deep. And uh, yeah, the first time I went through that, I came back down. Um, and the next day my legs were like black and blue all the way down with bruises because I've fallen into so many holes. Um, so we, we eventually cut a trail through there and once we'd all been through a few times it got a little bit easier just because we knew where we were going. But the first time, yeah, it was totally like sort of gorging our way through a forest from uh, a complete other planet. And then you get through the slime forest and it's still not over. There's a bit of a probably like 15 minutes walk through what what the locals call the savannah. Um, and when they said savannah, I was expecting to pop out of the slime forest onto some lovely grassy plain where all the hardship was over and we could just stare up at the mountain. And that, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, I was going to say now, what they call the savannah is actually known as El Dorado Swamp. And it, swamp is much more accurate than savannah. You pop out of the slime forest and um, you're into ankle deep mud and you're kind of going across this plain that's you know is actually relatively flat compared to what we were just on um but it's super super boggy the vegetation's all a bit weird you start to get into a lot of these plants called bromeliads which are like uh, if you imagine the top of a pine cone but just sort of make it 10 times larger there's a lot of those dotted about and you walk through the swamp for quite a while which brings you we had a um, sort of a staging post in the flats part of the swamp where we dropped quite a lot of the bags from our first trips up there and then we moved them on again a few days later um, and from the staging post there is the last part of the approach which is the total sting in the tail um, just when you think it's gone flat there's another really really steep vegetated horrible hill that lasts for at least another hour um, that involves, again, so steep walking that you are physically climbing at some points. Um, once it rains, some of the sections turn into like little waterfalls. The rock starts to become more apparent up there, so you are actually pulling on, on handholds that are real rock rather than plants, which is a nice change. Um, but the higher up you get this hill, on this hill, sorry, uh, the more bromeliads and more vegetation uh, come into play. And there's a few points where you're literally fighting your way through these plants that are higher than your head at some point. You're almost crawling through tunnels of them. And the sound they make, these bromeliad leaves, it's like um, like they're made out of um, foil or cardboard or something like that. And you're crunchy. It's an incredible sound. And you, you sort of swim your way up through all this vegetation. And then eventually you pop out on this little ridge which leads you in about five minutes to where we had our advanced base campsite, which is under Orima. So it's, it's a total quest just going from base camp to ABC. And uh, again, the first time we did it, first time we popped out there, it was, it was amazing and horrifying in equal measure. Amazing because of where we were, we could see all the way back over the jungle. And you know, we've just done this incredibly interesting and versatile trek from our base camp, but it was horrifying in two ways. One was that we didn't have any bags with us at this point, and we knew we had to get all the shit from base camp all the way up there, so goodness knows how many journeys that was going to take at that point, because we had a lot of stuff. And the other thing was, 
you turn around and you can see Roraima, or bits of it when it's not in the cloud, and you realise you're actually nowhere near the bottom of the wall. Still, there's another massive forest, swamp, vertical mudslide thing to go before you even get to the base of the wall. And can you imagine what it would have been like if we hadn't had five porters come with us to take all the stuff? We'd still be there, to be honest. Yeah, we'd have probably... Well, I genuinely think if that... If we hadn't had those guys, we wouldn't have made the cut-off. Mm. Or we would have had to can all of the filming and all of the red pointing, and it would have just been get to the top. Yeah, we, we might have got up it. Maybe, I don't know, probably Leo question, but I could see us maybe getting up it, but I think it would have been just in the nick of time, and we wouldn't. you guys probably wouldn't have been able to do any filming at all. If it, yeah, it wouldn't have been good. The, the fact that we had, we had five footers stay with us, um, and very, very kindly agreed to help us take all our stuff from base camp to advanced base camp um, before they left a little bit later than the others and went back to Philippi. And those guys are absolute machines on, on that ground. They had this incredible way of... Um, we'd have done a run from base camp to ABC, get there and be covered head to toe in mud, look absolutely disgusting. And then, all of a sudden, five of them would pop out from the slime forest wearing t-shirts and shorts and wellies and not be very muddy, just look like they'd been on like an afternoon stroll and they'd have these massively heavy bags on them. And it just, uh, they just have a way of moving over that ground that, that we just don't have because they're so used to it. Um, and yeah, they, uh, they're super, super fit, super, super strong and they can carry really, really heavy loads through awful terrain, you know, about three times as fast as we can. And yeah, I think without those guys, we'd have been there for a pretty long time, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were critical. And how, I mean, I've got photo evidence, but can you describe how your body reacted to going through the slime forest and falling in all sorts of holes? And um, Yeah, I got pretty battered. I think that was the worst shape my body was in the entire trip. Um, the, the bruises I had on my legs were pretty impressive. I woke up the next day, and when I was changing my clothes... I was just like, I'd like pull my trousers down a bit further and there'd be another massive green bruise there. It was pretty bad. And um, yeah, lots of, I got loads of um, just insect bites that everyone gets on their ankles, but I'd managed to keep infections at bay until that point. But because we were just also filthy all the time, that's when your all the little bites you've got on your ankles start to get really infected from the mud. And yeah, it, it wasn't that nice really at that point. I think that's, that's the worst physically I ever felt. Because you're exhausted too after doing that. And to make matters even worse, can you describe the first time you walked into Advanced Base Camp? Describe the scene of Advanced Base Camp and how you felt. Oh dear. Yeah, well, the first time I walked into Advanced Base Camp, it, it wasn't too bad because it wasn't Advanced Base Camp then. We'd arrived, it was the day I went with Leo and Dan. And uh, we got there and it's... It's obviously like a shit campsite, you know, you, you don't look at it and think we can pitch a tent there. But I kind of knew that, you know, with, with a day's work or a few hours work at least, we could probably make something vaguely habitable because um, we've been doing it pretty well so far. Um, but the first time, well, the time we arrived and we were going to stay, that was when it was really bad. Um, we, we tried to improve this site. Um, there was kind of like two vaguely flat bits of ground where we could just about pitch tents that we we basically had to fill the holes in with vegetation that 
we'd collected. And the problem is up there, there's no trees because you're at much higher altitude than we were down in the jungle. So the, the plants that we were using as tools were not particularly well suited for that job. We were using these big bromeliad leaves which aren't very flexible and they're, they're a bit shit. You can't really mould them very well. And um, I tried to make some things out of these. There's a load of bamboo shoots up there just with some secateurs and cutting them all down and trying to make a flat surface um, but it didn't really work very well. So we, we ended up with two tents that were kind of pitched they were okay and you could sort of get away with them but they were they were pretty awful you still feel like um i mean leon my tent had these tree roots that were kind of pushing up through all the layers of thermo rest that we had and you had to sleep in like a weird formation around them you couldn't move because you'd get spiked um, and then the living area that we had <laughs> was even worse um we'd rigged this parachute one of the parachutes that we'd use for airdropping all the stuff over the what we called the living area in advanced base camp and uh, we'd rigged it a couple of days before we actually moved up for good and then we got there on moving day and it had been it was being held up by this uh, pole that Edward and Troy had managed to find and it had looked pretty good when we left but when we got back it had ripped the top of the parachute and so the parachute had a massive hole in it and it slid down uh, this pole that was holding it up and we also found out that parachutes they're not waterproof anyway so <laughs> it was like there were drips coming through it in all the different sections of material and it was just it was just awful and uh, the guys did a really good job with what they had you know they did they couldn't have done any better eventually there was this old blue tarp that was left up there by a previous expedition, we don't know who it was. Um, and originally, we found this tarp, and everyone was a bit like, "Oh, you know, dickheads were leaving rubbish up here." But I mean, I think we're all pretty glad they did, because if we didn't have this big blue tarp, it was a bit shit. There was some holes in it at one end, um, but it was significantly better than the parachute. And we managed to rig it where the parachute was, and it kept the area slightly drier. Um, and underneath that, we just tried our best again with vegetation to make the surface somewhat flat which only kind of worked and sort of kept the mud at bay and yeah trying to cook in those conditions was was not ideal really to say the least um, nothing's flat everything's knocking over I was boiling the pan of water with one hand on it on the handle because it would just fall over otherwise and uh, when we got there we didn't know war camp one that we had turned out to be pretty amazing. We didn't know that at that point. So we could well have been spending two weeks down there. And, you know, the fact that we, we, we arrived and it was like in the middle of a rainstorm, it's freezing, it's thundering, it was awful. And we come all this way, we were now stuck at this higher altitude where it was really cold and horrible. We still were nowhere near the base of the wall. And uh, it kind of hit me at that point that, yes, we've come all this way, but there's still so far to go and we're in such a horrible position and I couldn't visualise ever actually being comfortable or dry ever again. Um, so I think that was, in terms of low points, that might have been the worst one for me because it just felt like even just to get warm was going to take hours and hours of effort. Um, and I knew that 
living in that camp was just going to be pretty hellish and I didn't know how long we were going to have to stay there and the thought of two weeks in that camp was a pretty miserable thought fortunately that that didn't happen but it could have done um so yeah ABC was not my favorite place (laughs) that we've been to yeah and at this point you've spent you know 10 days give or take maybe slightly longer living in the jungle with 20 guys and of of the climbing team, you know, we're all 10 years older than you. Mm. You're learning so much. Everyone's telling you all of this new stuff, telling you what to do, saying, do this this way, do this that way. Everyone's got a different opinion. And at this point, when you arrive into advanced base camp, and this is still going on, how is your patience holding up? I think, yeah, in terms of my patience, that was the one time it got really, really thin. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it was difficult in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I, mean, I, I don't want to make too big a deal with the, you know, being the only girl thing, but it, it is genuinely difficult um, living in an environment like that when you are the only female. That being said, I didn't want another girl on the team um, for, for totally different reasons, but... It's quite hard, you know, just having, like, no privacy ever, um, you know, no facilities. It's a little bit harder for, you know, quite a lot of reasons to be a girl, some of which are pretty obvious. Um, and, yeah, because I'm the youngest one by far and the one with the least experience, nearly everything that I was doing, I kind of needed to be told how to do it by someone first. Um, and, yeah, of course, everybody has different ways of doing it. So I do something one way and then someone else would say, oh no, you should do it that way. And trying to remember all that stuff was, yeah, pretty difficult. (laughs) Um, And I think, yeah, when we got to there, all I wanted to do really was crawl into a tent and go to bed. Um, But you know, we had to do, we were sorting out loads of stuff and I was trying to get the cooking done while the guys rigged tarp and stuff like that and it was definitely one of those points where you just get really grumpy and if anyone you know says anything like oh can you just pass me that I'm just like will you just fuck off I'm trying to do you know my hands are full I've got I've got a pan of boiling water in one hand and I'm trying to stop someone's dinner going into the mud and the other one and no I can't pass you the lighter um and I think Everyone has had moments like that on the trip, and it, it, it's not that you're genuinely annoyed with anyone in the team or anyone's actually pissed you off, but it, it's hard to not feel a bit irritable when you're in such a bad situation and, you know, you know there's, there's no way out. Yeah. And how do you cope with that irritability and those, well, the team dynamic? Um, yeah, I mean, fortunately, that, that, that didn't happen very often. You know, there's a couple of one-off moments when the situation was really hard that I was irritable, but... Yeah, um... I think... Basically, the way I started to cope with it was if there was a bad moment, because I'd been in the jungle for, like you said, over 10 days at this point, so... I had a little bit of experience to kind of look back on. And I always, I started just telling myself, 
in the bad moments, you know, there'll be a time tomorrow when you're really happy again, everything's great, something exciting's happened or going to happen, and then this bad moment will just be another memory that you'll forget about really quickly because you'll remember the good stuff instead. And, and it's kind of part of it because I think if I'd gone on this trip and didn't experience moments where I nearly lost it, I'd actually be really disappointed and it wouldn't have been hard enough. Like you need the balance of the bad moments and the really good ones to make it difficult and to make it super, super memorable. So while those moments are really hard and really tough, they're an important part of the experience. And I think, yeah, you've just got to try and remember that. And that while it's really difficult, you're still getting to experience this incredible part of the world. And, you know, we all want to be there and we all knew that it was going to be tough. Um, and you've got to try and remember to be grateful that you are in that position, you know, no matter how hard it gets, you're still privileged beyond belief to, to get to be there. So, yeah. Why, why privileged beyond belief? You know, we are making this sound like it's hellish. Yeah, there are good moments, but it's also really, really difficult. You know, we, we're bruised, we're bitten, we're tired, we're cold, we're hungry, then we were too hot. Then we were soaking wet. You know, it sounds dreadful. Yeah. Um, I think people... I think everyone has, has an instinct in them that you want to be challenged. I think that's just a natural human instinct and it's an important one to have. And, you know, where we all come from in the sort of developed world, life is, is really, really easy. And meeting the Amerindian guys kind of brings that home that, you know, they live in the middle of nowhere. You know, they're two hours plane ride away from Georgetown, which is still, you know, way different to where we come from. Um, And, you know, their life is all about just getting by. They don't have technology, they don't have jobs. They just go into the jungle, find food to feed their families, um, bring up their children. And those are the things that lives revolve around. Whereas we live a very different life, you know, we're focused on jobs and money and, you know, nice, comfortable houses. And it's good to be able to experience the total opposite of that. Um, It's a hard sort of concept to explain, but it's opposite in the sense that in the jungle, the things that we find easy and take for granted, like being able to wake up in the morning and make a cup of coffee and have a shower, they're really hard to do in the jungle. You know, to make a cup of coffee for eight people tends to take about an hour in some of these situations. And, you know, if you want to go for a wash, probably takes two hours and then you're dirty again within 15 minutes. Um, But on the other hand, we don't have to think about jobs or money. We're not thinking really that far ahead. Um, We're just thinking about where we're going to be the next day. And, you know, it's all short-term plans. We're not thinking long-term. 
we're just thinking about how to get by, how to keep the rest of our group safe, you know, kind of just looking out for each other in this little bubble that we exist in. Um, so, so I think, yeah, back to the original point, <laughs> we're privileged to have experienced that because it gives you a much greater appreciation for the things that we all completely take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you think there's power in it taking an hour to make a cup of coffee? Is that a worthwhile cause? Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, when we say it now, um, in, in this interview, in this situation, things like that just sound like a pain in the ass. And there were definitely, you know, there were a couple of mornings where we got up and there was a part of me that was kind of like, why can't we just get on with it, you know, doing... Do we really need coffee to, to start this day? Can we just not, would we not be making a better use of our time to just put our harnesses on and get some stuff done and we can have coffee later? But when you do stuff like that, just like little tasks that take you such a stupid amount of time to achieve, it actually feels like a proper achievement when you get it done. And it, it's nice that you know, at the start of the day, it was like a little ritual that we had, you know, we don't start doing stuff until we've all sat around and we've had a cup of coffee and everyone's kind of woken up a bit and started chatting to each other. And then we can maybe think about beginning our day and things like that become really important because they're almost, they were kind of like the only comforts we had because the rest of the day would often be, especially towards the end of the trip or in that middle section, would just be a complete suffer fest. And, you know, you wouldn't be comfortable again until you were in your hammock at night. So being able to sit down before we all got wet, before we all got covered in mud, and drink our coffee together and spend a bit of time talking was a really valuable part of the day. So, yes, it, <laughs> it's important to make your coffee in the morning. Yeah, and I, re I realised just then I've spent five or six minutes nodding and grinning like a Cheshire cat as you've been talking. <laughs> because you're bang on right. And, you know, there were some wet weather days where I knew I wasn't going to be doing any filming where I got up in the morning and I made coffee and it was stormy conditions and it took an hour and you know what it was like, you know, I had to go and light it in the portal ledge and bring it back and then sit in the rain and make coffee. But the sense of camaraderie that we as a team feel, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm not doing anything on the wet weather days. You know, I, I can't go and climb, I can't push the rope up any higher, but what I can do is get out of bed before, you know, you guys and those guys and make coffee that's yeah. a good use of my time and that team mentality is such a huge part of what makes this stuff worthwhile I think that's kind of exactly how I felt in a lot of ways coming into this because as everyone knows I'm the one with no experience in this situation and um, particularly in the early days in the jungle um, and basically for, for the most part of the trip apart from when um, we were on Invisible Ledge where you very kindly took over because I think I was going to cry if I was doing it. Um, I did all the cooking. Um, and, you know, the, the irritating people amongst us would probably go, oh, you know, she's only doing the cooking because she's a girl. Which, it's, it's, it's not true. I'm waiting for that comment from someone. You can fuck off if so. But, um, you know, that, that wasn't the situation at all. It was, I wanted to do it because I don't know about any of this stuff. I cannot help the guys, you know, rig ropes for hauling or, you know, mess about with parachutes or 
pack all the essentials that we're going to need. There's a lot of things I don't know about, and um, I'd probably only be in the way and confusing people if I tried to help with stuff like that. So to have a task, even if it was just cooking every morning and night, where I had this thing that I was going to do that is, you know, I guess some people one of the more boring tasks, but it's an essential task. We all need to eat twice a day. You know, we're not going to get very far if we don't. Um, and yeah, to just have something that I was doing to keep the team going as my role, if you will, in the earlier days of the trek um, was something that was really important to me and I really appreciated having that. You know, it was nice to, I tended to get up, you know, half an hour before everyone else in the morning and it turned into something that I started to look forward to because I'd have half an hour where I was the only one up walking around camp. It was really early in the morning. All the hummingbirds and everything were out because none of the rest of the team were up. And I could just get the stove on, make some coffee, have a bit of reflection time, and then everyone else would wake up and make breakfast for us all. Um, and yeah, it was, it was nice being able to contribute in that aspect. Yeah, I think that is a really... It, well, we spent four weeks together, so I won't bother with the disclaimers. But that is a really eloquent way of putting it. And, you know, really astute. It's exactly what I was trying to say about getting up on the wet weather days. You know, it's got nothing to do with gender or age. It's got a lot to do with experience and purpose. You know, Leo has got a lot on his plate. The last thing he needs to be doing is cooking. Waldo the same. Dan's constantly working with tech. I'm trying to edit photographs and write copy and take photographs and stuff. You know, everybody's got a lot on. So it makes perfect sense for you to have done that when you did. But, yeah, but when we got on the wall, again, you know, roles and stuff changes around and... At the end of the day, with this one expedition unit, you know, you factor Edward and Troy into that as well. Suddenly they're fetching water with Dan. We're going to come on to all this in a minute, but wall camp life changed everything yet again. Yeah, you it know. did. It was a, another dynamic. Once again, everything shifts, everyone's roles change. Yeah. Especially with the weather and the hardship and portage <laughs> life. So, well, I suppose that's the segue then. Let's, so where do we go on our journey from advanced base camp? Yeah, so uh, from advanced base camp, we needed to get up to the base of the wall. We'd got all our stuff from base camp to ABC, which took about a week. Um, And we basically needed to do it all again on a slightly smaller scale this time, well, actually a much smaller scale, um, on the last segment of the approach to the wall. Um, And this last bit of approach was fairly similar to the mudslide jumaring at the beginning of the base camp approach, just a little bit shorter. There was one big fixed rope and then there was another similar length section of basically crawling up vertical bamboo. The terrain on that bit was was the worst out of everything. Um, It was the loosest, the most horrible. And it was actually pretty dangerous, like, thinking about it, because... On the bits that you weren't attached to the rope, if you'd fallen off, like you probably would die from there. Um, you had to be really, really careful. And um, the, the ground was particularly loose. You were genuinely holding on to like, fistfuls of, of bamboo shoots. And if you had 20 in a fist, you'd pull on it and maybe three would stay attached. And that would, that's what would keep you holding on. The more we went up there, the worse it got. Um, and we were kind of banking on there being a good camp at the bottom of the wall and we kind of knew that there was because being a 73 expedition up there um, 
we had the book that um, that they'd written about their experience, and, and we did know that there was a bit of a sheltered cave at the bottom of Verima. Um, the issue being for us that at this point we're a team of eight, um, and we didn't know how big this cave was. Um, it might have only been big enough for two people to bivy up there, in which case it might have been a staging post, and whoever was climbing the next day might have been able to stay there. But realistically, if it had been that small, there'd have been six of us living back at ABC, which would have been absolutely awful. Um, fortunately for us, uh, we got up there and we found that the camp, our first wall camp, it's, uh, I don't know, 50 feet long, something like that. Um, and it's right at the bottom of Rhino, right underneath um, all these innumerable horizontal roofs that do an incredible job of keeping it bone dry. Um, so it was like this tiny island <laughs> in this river of rain and mud that was completely dry. We got up there and the ground, the soil that was on the ground was you know, beige and it hadn't been rained on. And just being able to see dry ground was just so amazing at that point. And uh, yeah, basically after a, a couple of days of faffing with it, we had a really sweet wall camp. We had four port ledges set up um, and quite a lot of space between them. And there was this big kind of rocky ledge thing that was sticking out that was really flat. That was, I think we ended up calling it Pride Rock for most of the time. And it was an amazing cooking platform. So I spent a lot of time just perched on the end of there. Um, just super, super happy because I had finally had somewhere to put stove that wouldn't make it fall over and I could lay everyone's bowls out without them falling into Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It was, it was amazing. Um, and we had a, a safety line system at that point. When I say it wasn't a wall camp, there is a drop below it that would absolutely kill you if you fell off it. Um, so, you know, everyone did have to be. We weren't wearing harnesses at this point. We had everyone had a sling on, they had to be in the system at all times. But it was a really good introduction to um, Invisible Ledge, which we'll get, we'll get to in a bit. Um, it was just like a segue between the jungle camps and the proper wall camp higher up. Um, but yeah, it, it was great to get everyone up there and finally be able to just chill out a bit from everything being muddy constantly and wet and, you know, we could all hang our waterproofs up and they'd actually be dry at the start of the day. And we could, we got up there and we all broke out our wall shoes and trainers and stuff and the jungle boots actually got put away for a bit. It was, yeah, it was great to just have a bit of a change of scene and not be stuck in the vegetation. Do you feel like you were mentally and physically needing that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, 
yeah, basically I was. I could have stuck it out for a, a bit longer, you know. Um, but I certainly wanted a change of scene by that point. You know, we'd we'd been in the jungle quite a long time and it had gotten just worse and worse and worse, the living situation. And to finally be able to spend some time in a nice dry camp where there's it's rock rather than jungle was a bit of a relief. I think everyone felt that way. Yeah. Yeah, I know I did. Um, so how was ledge life with Captain Faf? <laughs> oh, it was interesting. Leo wriggles like a lot. Um, he, he, he always loses. He's going to kill me for saying all this, but he has this incredible habit of losing everything in the portal ledge. And these ledges we have, they're like, I don't know, six foot square or something like that. And I don't know how he functions in a house with all this stuff. <laughs> because... <laughs> I'd get in every night and then he'd get in and immediately lose all his stuff. Most of it. <laughs> Most of which would be found at the bottom of his sleeping bag. After. <laughs> oh, Once he'd blamed you and then me for stealing his socks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of a ritual every night. Leo would get in, he'd lose all his shit. You blame everyone else. <laughs> and then... You, <laughs> oh, my God. You tell the same... Ugh, tell this story without laughing. Um, you do that. And then I'd, I'd say to him, check the bottom of your sleeping bag. <laughs> and he'd say, oh, no, it's not there. And then I'd keep asking him to check the bottom of his sleeping bag. And about half an hour later, he would. And the thing he'd lost would be in the bottom of his sleeping bag. <laughs> and it was nearly always his socks, but there was a few other things like head torches, and he lost his sleeping bag liner once <laughs> in the bag the whole time. <laughs> I don't know how the two. It was amazing, wasn't it? I'm the, sorry, Leo, when you listen to this, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> the two most like organised and sort of logistically high functioning members of the team, Leo and Waldo, spend so long getting into and out of bed. Yeah, they, it's crazy. I mean, Waldo is a whole different story, but... <laughs> but yeah, so basically Leo's a nightmare. Um, he always has to go up to pee about two in the morning as well. <laughs> so every night, the bottom ledger would just nearly get tipped over while Leo was trying to get up. Because they're so unstable. Um, so I'd always wake up then and I'd have to go back to sleep. So yeah, I, I was missing my hammock at that point because it didn't have Leo in it. <laughs> But this is but this is just portal edge life, right? That's oh yeah, I mean that makes it, it just makes it really really funny. Yeah, um, and you know we we'd all spent like three weeks together by that point, so everyone was pretty comfortable with each other. Um, you know, you, in a pretty confined space, the two. I imagine it was awful for you guys because you're all a bit taller wow. <laughs> and bigger. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, wriggling aside, that it, it was nice to be because we the tents we had. Uh, ABC were pretty horrific so it was really nice to just get into a portal edge which you know they're free hanging so there's no roots sticking in your back from the ground um yeah it's just nice to get into one of those everything was dry on the ledge it was you know pretty cozy um it, it definitely made a nice change yeah and it's I, I always find it's amazing how you know living in these confined spaces particularly portal edge camps it strips away all of the normal crap that we have with, you know, personal space mm. and 
and I guess sort of prudishness. You know, you need to. I needed to chuck powder on my feet every night because I've got jungle boot rot going on. And Dan just had to deal with that. And, you know, when we were sleeping on what we called Hurricane Corner, because it was the one bit of the wall that was exposed, <laughs> and our tent was like a, like a helter-skelter every night, our portal edge. Um, yeah, and it just all disappears. And you just have to get on with it and get changed and deal. And, yeah. And it... I don't know, there's something really special about that and how the camaraderie and the community feel of it all and this kind of hippie oneness that is the team yeah it's a totally different vibe to anything that it would just be it would be a really weird situation if you were anywhere else in the world but the fact that yeah I mean you kind of I mean we were a big team um, the eight of us at that point but still there's only eight people and we've been stuck in this bubble together for a month you know we've kind of all each other have got at that point so yeah, I think you just become a lot more sort of like you let go of of silliness, really. You know, it's it's fine to be like stuck together in such close proximity in tiny little ledges. Um, you know, yeah, you lose a lot of um, like I said, prudishness, I suppose. Yeah, and the jokes and the banter and everything yeah, starts yeah, to change exactly. and come out. And... Um, but it, it's good because I think you, you lose a lot of. Um, I mean, again, just have to bring it up again. You know, just being the only girl on the team, stuff like that. It's it's a little bit more. You kind of worry about stuff like that before going on these exhibitions. You're like, you know, not having any personal space really at all and stuff like that. But once you you get used to it, um, you know, it just becomes a way of life and it's normal for everyone. We're we're stuck together in these little sardine cans and that's how it is. Yeah. But it's it's fine and yeah. And sort of the the. You know, when we were having, we had we had rehydrated eggs every third day. Yeah. And we had tortillas with them. And, you know, you just, even at home, you'd pass the packet. Here, you've got four-week-old grimy hands, and you're just passing tortillas around. And nobody really bats an eyelid. You got a bit grumpy about everyone's bowls being dirty. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we, we all had um, a bowl and a cup that were, that's all the uh, utensils we had, food the whole trip. And, uh, you know, you, you eat your breakfast in the morning and I, at least, tended to make a point <laughs> of uh, washing my breakfast out and making sure the bowl was clean before I put dinner in. But um, certain members of the team, that shall not be named, <laughs> um, <laughs> because they've already been named once in the Portal Edge story, <laughs> um, didn't really understand how washing up worked. Um, and... Yeah, because I was the one serving the food every night. Basically, I ended up washing people's bowls out for them because I couldn't physically bring myself to put food on top of eggs, curry, chocolate mousse, and the next morning's granola that was still in layers in the bottom of the bowl. It's just, it's revolting. The trick, the trick is, we'll go on to more interesting stuff now, but you leave the remnants of the chocolate mousse after dinner so that you can have chocolate granola in the morning. And I will admit, I did... The very final morning, we had chocolate mousse last night, we stayed on the top, and I actually did do that, and it was really nice. See? But the, that's acceptable, but but what is it? Chocolate mousse and then eggs, that's not acceptable. Or that's, curry, then or rice curry. pudding. Yeah, there, there is. <laughs> and yeah, some, certain people's cups as well just got horrendous because they never washed the lids out, and it was... <laughs> I, had, uh, I had other things on. 
So anyway, let's talk about rock climbing. So from, you know, we're all living in our um, wall camp at the base. Can you talk about the climbing coming straight off the deck and up to the bot ladder? Yeah. Um, so the climbing from the deck to the bot ladder was, in the end, three pitches that Leo and Wilson did. I can't remember. I think Leo led most of them. I can't remember which way around it was. Maybe the Wilson did one. And uh, they're up these kind of steep, blocky corners that are pretty loose and there's a lot of uh, insect life that lives in those. And those guys on sighted from the ground all the way up to Tarantula Terrace, which was, you know, very, very impressive, of course. Um, I mean, Leo and Wilson are incredible at that sort of thing, you know, they're really good at on-sighting up really scary, loose, horrible terrain that, you know, scares the shit out of me, I wouldn't want to do it. Um, and, yeah, so, so they pushed the ropes all the way up to Tarantula Terrace, and uh, obviously we all GMAD that section, so we all got a good look at it, and... Um, well, I think all the pitches would be, like, if we'd had another two weeks, I'd have had a look at them all and, and, and climb them. And they did look like, after a bit of a clean, they'd probably be really good. Um, but, yeah, the fact that they went ground up on those was, was very impressive. And can you talk to me about your odyssey on pitch four, Mo, Ant- Mo Antoine's bolt ladder? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the 73 route, we shared their line for... I think four pitches before deviating off left to our own line. And the fourth pitch, um, as you said, was Mo Antoine's bolt ladder from, from the 73 expedition. And what it is, you do these first three pitches up to Tarantula Terrace, which is exactly what it says on the tin. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's this section of rock that is, first off, it's absolutely incredible rock. It's this like peach sort of sunset coloured orange quartzite and it goes from trench to the terrace probably about 25-30 metres up to uh, another belay little ledge system thing and the bottom section of it is very very blank there's not a lot of holes there's no natural gear placements unfortunately and what they'd done back in 73 is mower drilled a bolt ladder all the way up to the next anchor, which is still there. It looks in pretty bad condition now. Um, but yeah, uh, so Wilson and Leo, um, I believe I wasn't there when they did this, but I think they aided up it. And yeah, Wilson did. Wilson yeah. did, that was right, okay. And then they put a couple of new bolts in because they certainly couldn't trust those old things. And um, after the first, I don't know, 10 meters or so, maybe a bit more, the natural gear, appears and is actually really good um so they, they basically put some bolts in then the first half's bolts second half's cans um and then those guys had a very brief look at how to pre-climb it um it wasn't really their priority their priority was to get the rope higher um but they put some chalk on some holes uh and then i came up and had a look to see if it would go through or not um so we put a top rope on, uh, Wilson was belaying me at this point, and I swung around for a bit, 
and realised that, I mean, my first thoughts on the pitch were, shit, it's really hard. Um, the first section, which was the crook section, the, the blank orange rock, is... The climbing's okay up until one move. It's quite strenuous. You, you pull over this mini horizontal roof to start with, um, and there's a move where if your foot pops, you might take quite a nasty fall onto this big block. Um, but once I'd worked all that out, it was absolutely fine. It took a bit of working out. There's a lot of tiny little edges, some of which are more positive than others. And you need to make sure that you remember which ones to pull on. Um, and that brings you out to the crux move, which was ended up being a total battle for me. It's this sequence of two tiny little crimpy edges, and you've got to match hands on both of them. The second one is way worse than the first. And then you get your feet really high, and there's this big lunge move to a horizontal break, which is like totally at the span of my reach. Um, if it had been any further away, I physically wouldn't be able to reach it. Um, and unfortunately, because it's a break, not a jump, you've got to be really accurate. So you've got to try and do this really dynamic move statically to actually hit the hold. And from there, um, it took me a bit of working out. You, you traverse left a few moves and then you kind of go up the final 15 metres, maybe, maybe a bit more, um, to the anchors. And there was another couple of interesting moves on that. There's one, it's like a Gaston off this it's not even really an edge that and then you get um another really shit hold after that and do a bit of a lunge again this big flat hold where you get a good rest and that moves fine until it gets damp and uh the issue was Verima creates his own weather systems and uh in literally five minutes you can go from perfect blue sky to a complete white out cloud of mist swirling in to literally to the point where I was on that pitch and couldn't see Waldo or Wilson who would be late me. I couldn't see you guys at the top either. You know, that's how bad it gets. And when it's like that, um, I mean, you can see it on your hair. Your hair goes white with the mist that comes in. And if you think about that, um, for all the climbers listening, on climbing holes, they become damp right? and climbing becomes really hard. And unfortunately, that kept happening on the route. The lower part was kind of all right. It just about escaped because it was steeper. But the higher part where you're really actually really pumped after doing the bottom section, suddenly it becomes really damp and 10 times harder. Um, so I got all the moves sorted in one day and then uh, started trying to lead it. And I mean, long story short, what happened was I fell off the crooks loads and loads of times um, and got really, really frustrated. And I think on that first or second day, I, I never led past the crooks, but then I led from there to the top of the pitch just to get it a bit more wide. And that was nice because it meant I got, you know, 10 minutes of some nice lead climbing on some easier moves just to get into the zone. I mean, it had been three weeks since I'd done any sort of climbing. Um, and, you know, your body feels a bit bad after being in the jungle for that long. I and mean, it's hard to get yourself... You can't warm up at all or anything like that. You're straight onto a really hard pitch. Um, but anyway, on the third day, um, finally managed to get through the crooks. I eventually found um, a slightly higher foothold on the right, um, which meant that I could pull really, really hard. I could just about do the move statically. It made it a bit less sketchy. And I eventually got through that crooks, and then I was like, right, I'm not letting go now, <laughs> so I'm not going to do that again. Um, 
And actually, because I'd had, I think, had I had a rest? No, I hadn't. can't remember whether I'd had a rest day. Either day, maybe it was just a night. I think it yeah, was I think night, you just had it? the night, yeah. Um, but the day before, I'd been trying to lead it basically after working it for three hours, and I was really pumped because it's hard to find the sequence. Um, so after a bit of a rest, coming back fresh, once I got through the crooks, I knew I wasn't going to fall off. And the, yeah, the rest of it was super, super atmospheric. Because again, the mist rolled in, you leading this amazing pitch thousands of feet above the jungle. Um, yeah, topping out on that was, was pretty incredible. I'm not going to forget that. No. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, but it was, a, it was a pretty wild ride. Like, can you describe the emotions going through your head between working the route, working the pitch and getting it finished? Yeah. Um, it was the first time on the expedition that I felt pressure. Um, I mean, it wasn't necessarily from anyone else, you know, it was mostly pressure from myself. But, um, I mean, two things really. One, I had a lot of worries coming into this. One of which was, could I survive the jungle and not just totally break down? Which had actually happened better than I could have ever expected. But what I didn't want to happen was do all that really well and then get to the wall and not be able to function at all. And, you know, you've come all this way as a climber, you'd want to leave with a pitch on this new route that is, you know, your pitch, you made the first ascent of it. And while I wasn't as involved with the scary on-siting stuff, because, you know, I'm not experienced at all, um, that you know, this was the hardest move on the route. So I guess the crook's pitching away. Um, and I knew I had this opportunity to sort of leave my mark on the route by doing the pitch with the hardest move on and making the first free ascent of it. Also because it's, it's got a little bit of history as it was the bolt ladder in 73 that they couldn't free climb. Um, and I knew that the, the chance was there and I could do the move, I'd done it on top rope, but it was just at that point of, there was definitely a bit of uncertainty, you know, can I actually do this? Um, and the other thing was that the point of this expedition was to climb a free route, up the Frau Verona. And the boys were pushing the ropes higher on sighting after this pitch while I was still working it. And over the three days, they'd done everything, they'd freed everything. And the one bit that hadn't been freed was my pitch. And I knew if I freed it, then we you know we're back on. And you know, of course, what could have happened was if I hadn't been able to do it, I'm sure Leo Wilson could have done. But I didn't want that to happen, you know. He's, I, I, as the only girl on the team, you want to prove that you can, you can do it just as well as the boys can. Um, and I didn't want to have to have one of them come down from what they were doing to climb my pitch because I couldn't do it. You know, that would have been pretty shit. Um, so the, I was definitely had a bit of pressure on myself. Um, and on the day I did it, um, I knew that pressure was starting to affect me because the first couple of lead attempts... I just totally fluffed the sequence on the lower bit because I wasn't thinking about it anymore. You know, I had all these distractions. And I was just like, right, you need to get to the move. I need to do it. And then I fell off twice and it was all starting to go wrong again. And then on the last go, I was just like, right, you need to, you know you can do it. You've got this extra foothold. You need to focus and just get it done. And then, like, thank God it actually happened. <laughs> yeah, it did actually. And it was amazing watching it all. You know, I'm, I was dangling on a rope at some points less than a metre away from you. Well, maybe two metres away from you. But... And you don't have, we all have radios pretty much full time on that wall. Um, you don't have a radio when you're leading in that sort of environment because you're so close to all of us and you need to have a minimal weight on your harness. 
could you hear what was coming over the radio whilst you were on lead? No, I haven't got a clue. So it was, it was such bad timing, as these things often are, because Leo was coming over the radio from five or six pitches up. He knew you were due to be on the lead. And he's like, how's she doing? How's she getting on? Has she done it yet? Has she started yet? What's going on? And, you know, it wasn't like... It was just bad timing that yeah. as you're like trying to go through these crooks moves, my radio's deep. I'm like desperately trying to turn it off. Like, oh shit, I hope she can't hear this. Oh, I didn't hear any of that, no. That's the good. Picture, yeah, I haven't got a clue about yeah. that. <laughs> but like, you know, and it's, everyone gets behind each other in those critical moments, don't they? You know, that was yeah. your day. That was the day where what mattered, you know, Waldo was belaying you, Dan and I were both dangling on ropes to film you. Waldo and Wilson are both trying to see what's going on from six pitches up because they're desperate to know. But you did it, right? Yeah. Oh, I remember when I did clip the chains, Waldo, Anka, um, looking down and Waldo was on the ledge, he was belaying me, but he had Troy and Edward with him. And those guys, because we were still quite early on in our little quest, they didn't know what free climbing was. Um, we kind of explained to them the differences between A climbing and free climbing, but they hadn't really seen it yet. Um, so they came up to the ledge with Waldo to watch me on this pitch and they saw me top roping it and then we explained to them that, you know, right, okay, I've done it on a top rope but this is going to change because now the rope's going to be on the other side and I need to do it this way, you know, ethically for it to be... For people that don't know, can you just quickly explain the difference between aid climbing, free climbing and soloing? And so, yeah, of course. Um, so... Uh, aid climbing is you go up a piece of rock and uh, to protect yourself on rock faces you can either use natural gear placements which are, I could explain it properly, but essentially little bits of metal that you wiggle into cracks in the rock and you can put your weight on them. Um, so you can use those or you can use bolts that are drilled directly into the rock face and then you can clip carabiners to on your rope. If you're aid climbing, um, it's much more complicated than this, and I have no experience in it, so might not be the best explanation. But essentially, you're using whatever you can, gear-wise, to pull yourselves up. You're putting your weight on the climbing gear. You're using it as hand tools and footholds, etc., etc. Free climbing is you're still using the gear that's on offer, um, but it's only there as protection should you fall. Uh, so you're climbing the pitch in a single push with just your hands and feet, clipping the gear as you go, so if you fall, it's there to save you, and that's that. Um, soloing is, is, I guess some people describe it as like the purest form of climbing, and, and in a way it is, um, you climb a rock face with your hands and feet, and there's no protection there. Um, and you know, that, that's a completely different game, that's one chance. Uh, you know, you, often you will die if you fall off or seriously injure yourself. So it's, yeah. <laughs> so there is a different kettle of fish. Yeah. But that, that's the main differences, yeah. It's just good to clarify it because, you know, already I've seen some media stuff coming out from this expedition and people are hashtagging free solo. Yeah. And it's the Alex Honnold phenomenon in craze yeah. that people think free climbing is soloing. Yeah. So it's just good to clarify yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, you didn't free solo that pitch halfway up Mount Absolutely not. <laughs> I'd be very dead right now if I tried to. Um, but yeah, so basically we were trying to explain the differences um, to Edward and Troy, who obviously didn't know anything about climbing. Um, and yeah, so they, they'd watch me on the top rope, um, and then they watched me get on the lead, 
and take a few falls, which kind of shocked. But I mean, it wasn't a big fall at all, but um, they didn't know what was going to happen. Um, so they got quite excited when I started falling off this crux. Um, but they very quickly understood what needed to happen to get this pitch done. And I remember getting to the top and looking down and, you know, Waldo was cheering away, but those two were as well. And, you know, it was a really nice bit of camaraderie between, you know, very, very different people. Well, it was nice to experience that balance shift where we we were all a team. You know, we became a team of eight when Edward and Troy joined us. And before that, they, they're the jungle specialists, right? They were taking us through this environment, helping us to stay alive, helping us to, you know, to be comfortable as well. But as soon as we got onto the vertical terrain, that shifts slightly. And yes, they're ferrying water loads. And yes, they're helping out in camp. But it was up to Waldo largely to guide them up and to watch you climbing. And so it's, you know, how did you find it with those guys on the wall? I, yeah. And the fact that we had those guys with us was, in a way, one of the best parts of the expedition to me. It was something that I'll never forget. Um, and like you said, um, you know, we if we'd had to get through that jungle on our own without any of those guys, we'd have had a pretty interesting task on our hands. You know, I don't know whether we could have done it. I personally don't think we could. Um, or, you know, if we did, it would have taken us a much, much longer time. Um, so basically, we got to the base of the wall because those guys helped us and shared all their knowledge. So to be able to give back to them you know, particularly Waldo, because he was kind of in charge of overseeing their dream wiring lessons and everything, and get them to a place, the summit, that they'd never have been able to get to without us, after them getting us to a place that we couldn't have got to without them, was, I guess, yeah, the best, I mean, the ports all got paid, but this was one of the best repayments I think we could have given them, you know. They gave us such a great experience and we got to give them one back. Yeah, and that was part of Leo's deal with them was, you know, you guys are on task, you're at work, up until the point we get to the base of the wall. And if anybody wants to come up the wall with us, yeah. that's cool and we'd love for that to happen, but this is not a paid gig. This is because you want to join this team. And it worked out brilliantly that those two were the only two who wanted to. And Yeah, know. and they're such nice guys as well. Yeah down to earth and get to understand the culture and the jokes start coming out thick and fast. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So from your pitch, basically, we jumped up and through and then we're over to Invisible Ledge. Can, yeah. can you describe Invisible Ledge Camp and life on it? Mm. Uh, Invisible Ledge Camp was, yeah, it was our first proper wall camp. Invisible Ledge is about 30 feet long, about three feet wide. Um, and it resides two pitches, maybe three, I can't remember, above Tarantula Terrace. Um, and yeah, essentially what it was was a much smaller, much more cramped and way more exposed version of what we had down below. But there was still space for, I mean, it was still a very big ledge in, in terms of <laughs> ledges. We had four portal ledges up and, you know, it was just about big enough for a team of eight, as we were at that point, to fairly comfortably exist halfway up Mount Marima. Um, it was a little bit, well, a lot more exposed than the ledge we had previously. So once we got, we were, I mean, I was there with you and Dan for, and Edwin and Troy, of course, for 
it was four nights and I guess three full days where we got some, the weather really turned on us basically. The first morning on Invisible Ledge was incredible. We got a really nice sunrise, but from there until the morning that we all left, the weather got pretty bad. Um, there was a lot of storms coming in, a lot of rain, um, and you know, it, it got quite miserable on that ledge. I think, because Waldo, Wilson and Leo were kind of spending every day pushing the rope a little bit higher and, you know, in a situation where it was better if the rest of the team stayed on the ledge experience-wise, because once you add super hostile weather to the situation that we were in and those guys trying to push the ropes higher, you know, you need that experience and it was better for everyone else to stay at camp. Um, and while I thought, I kind of felt sorry for those guys because, you know, they were having to toggle every morning and go up and spend a whole day faffing in this horrendous weather. Um, I think they were actually probably in bright spirits than any of us were on the ledge because at least they were doing something. Um, and we were, yeah, stuck on this ledge with minimal entertainment for three whole days and four nights. So it, it did get a bit miserable. Yeah, so the moment you left Invisible Ledge to go and climb to the summit and the elation of... Yeah, it was a pretty good moment. Um, we've been basically imprisoned on Invisible Ledge for three days. And uh, I'd been staring at the inside of the port. I mean, the view's beautiful. I should have been looking at the view. But um, unfortunately, we had one of our lovely uh, storm systems come in and the ledge was just white out cloud for about three days. So I spent them staring at the inside of the port ledge, listening to Lord of the Rings audiobooks on my phone, which was great for the first two hours. Um, and then it became <laughs> quite... <laughs> yeah, it, it, it lost its appeal pretty fast. Um, and the worst thing was, um, a day previously, we were thinking about pushing to the summit. And I think we all would have done had the weather not deteriorated as badly as it did. Um, so I was kind of psyched up for leaving that day. And then, you know, we got up in the morning and it, it wasn't going to be possible. And Leo totally made the right call in saying that we should spend one more night at the ledge. And initially I was like, oh my God, I just want to, I want to walk on some flat ground. You know, I was getting really sick of being in this ledge all day and night. But um, in the end, of course, he was, he was totally right. Um, but when the time came to actually leave, yeah, it was incredible. We got lucky with the weather that day. The morning was absolutely beautiful. It was quite cold and windy still, but we, we had this beautiful sunrise. We'd all eaten. I think we had a double breakfast that day, so it was a, it was a highlight day, full rations. Um, and yeah, after basically sitting on my ass for three days <laughs> to get all my equipment back on the harness and lower out from that ledge into to get up these static ropes because Ram is so steep uh, you have to do a thing called lowering out so basically using a greek without getting too complicated using a gregory um, you lower yourself away from the cliff until you're directly under the rope you're going to gmar up so it doesn't swing and then you know you go up with your ascenders and uh, slowly lowering into space and, you know, dangling thousands of feet above the jungle with the view all the way back to Philippi over all the distance we've covered. And then, you know, finally getting to do something physical after sitting around for so long, just, just G-marring was, was amazing. I've never appreciated it as much. I usually hate G-marring, but this is great. And yeah, we just got to, you're just ascending these fixed ropes that are just hanging in the middle of nowhere with, you know, a massive overhanging cliff on one side that you can't see the top of. And you know this 
vast expanse of jungle on the other side. It was pretty incredible. It was as good as the climbing. Never thought I'd say that about GMRing, but it was. Yeah, I, I mean, we had very different days that day. I spent a lot of it filming and mm. bringing, um, bringing up the road with Leo and Wilson, but I sort of know what you mean. It was, it was just journeying through that environment. You know, those guys had spent hours, days up there pushing the rope higher, but we're travelling through it for the first time, seeing those roof systems, arriving on those ledges. And what was it like for you topping out? Um... Yeah, it wasn't quite what I expected because unfortunately the, the way this expedition had to happen is the team was a bit fragmented by the stage. You know, Some of us were topping out, a lot of you guys were still down on the walls. You know, you kind of have in your head that you'll all sum it together and it's going to be all amazing. And it, it was amazing. It was kind of amazing in a different way because um, there was hardly any of us at the top. You know, Dan got up before me and then I came up and it was just us up there for about an hour until the rest of them came up. And yeah, you, you suddenly feel very, very small. You know, you're on two people on the top of this massive tapiri that you can't even see the back of it because it, it's so enormous. Uh, and yeah, like you said, we got super lucky with the weather. We could see all the jungle. We could see exactly where we trekked across for the last month. Um, and yeah, so it, it, it was pretty amazing to, to finally just be stood on top of it after a year of it just being a photograph and thinking, you know, that's really scary that's never going to work, how are we going to do it? And suddenly it's all over and you're at the top. Yeah. Were there any other emotions going on when you topped out? Um, I don't know. I think it was, it, it was mostly just elation and surprise in a way that it had all gone so well. Um, and gratitude that the weather was not awful at that point. Um, it, it, then it looked like we were going to have a really nice evening. We didn't. But, um, yeah, I mean, it kind of a mix of emotions, you know, you, you feel like you're on top of the world in a way because you've had this experience that's gone on for a whole month and it's been really, really hard and then suddenly you're at a point where you can't go any further. You've reached the goal that you've spent the last month trying to achieve um, and you're almost kind of like, oh, well, what, what do I do now? I'm here. But overwhelming emotion, of course, we're just happy. Yeah. And then... It all went downhill. It did indeed. <laughs> so, can you talk us through summit camp life? Uh, yeah, so our little summit camp, basically, uh, summit looks like it's the surface of the moon. Um, there's no vegetation, the, the rock is... It's a bit like grit stone in a way, but with a lot more air pockets and bubbles and weird formations. Um, and we found this flat patch where the guys had, had rigged three tents. There isn't really anything to attach it to up there. The best we could do for a lot of the guy ropes was literally just go on missions and try and find the biggest stones we could and use those to anchor the guy ropes down on the tents and the tarp. Um, and the whole afternoon that uh, a few of us were up there was absolutely beautiful. It was really still, uh, the clouds were really low, we could see everywhere. And it felt, it started to feel like holiday again. You know, it was quite warm when the wind dropped. And uh, I remember I went on a little water mission all the way over to the far side of Roraima from where our camp was. And I had this amazing view onto the Diamond Falls. And I was just thinking, oh, you know, after everything that's happened, we're going to have a really comfortable night on the summit and it's going to be amazing. 
And uh, unfortunately, as soon as the light started to go, the weather came back in with it. And you could just feel it happening, you know, the winds, the breeze starts to get up and you feel that first drop of rain and the mist comes in and then you realise that, oh, it's going to be another supper fest night. And it was, unfortunately. Yeah. And can you sort of finally, before we close up, just talk about what the last night was like hanging out in the ledge, in the tent and... Um, yeah, I mean, it was actually one of the harder nights, I think, just because of the temperature. You, I mean, by the time you get to the top of Arima, you're really quite high up, and it is really cold and really exposed. There was nothing to shelter us. We were all kind of sat under the tarp, and the wind would blow, and, you know, the whole tarp nearly moved, flipped over, stones and all. And, you know, the whole team, all eight of us, were, were sat under there, uh, eating our dinner, drinking the last two bottles of rum that we brought from the UK um, and it was it was kind of miserable um, th- there was still a sense of you know we- we've done it we're here but I think everyone was just a bit colder than you know we were, but then we went to bed and uh, we were pretty worried that the weather really came in during the night when we were asleep and you could hear the tent was like folding basically with us in it because it was so windy and the rain was bashing it about and little droplets started to come through because they're not probably waterproof and you know everyone was kind of thinking we might actually have to get out soon and try and re-anchor this tent down before it blows away which we fortunately didn't have to do um and then the morning after we woke up and in a really thick freezing mist and it, it was pretty hard going up there really it wasn't amazing I think that was the worry, like the overarching worry that evening was that, you know, we had helicopter logistics due at 8am the next day and everything we've experienced was sort of pointing towards that being unlikely. Yeah, and I was pretty worried. I didn't sleep much um, that night just because of the weather, but the overwhelming thought going through my head was like, oh my God, you know, you can kind of put up with that stuff when the end's in sight, but... It looked like it wasn't, because, you know, I was kind of thinking, well, this sucks, but I'm going to go home tomorrow. Um, but then doubts start to creep in, and you're like, oh, well, maybe the helicopter can't land, and maybe we are going to be stuck up here for two weeks, and what if we miss our flights home? Then what are we going to do? Then it's just going to turn into a nightmare. Yeah. One of the um, plane pilots on the way in said, um, if we didn't get picked up on the 5th or the 6th, we'd have to wait there for months. Did he? Obviously, he was slightly tongue-in-cheek, but... You know, we had a scheduled well, flight and it's the wet season now, so... Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, had we had to go back down to the jungle, it would have been a different story, I think, from when we went in. And, you know, we, we were genuinely in a serious situation regarding food. I don't know if they could have airdropped any food onto the top of Orima. How do we, you know, God knows what would have happened. But, um, yeah, it was certainly a very big worry that night, um, especially because we'd had such a good weather day that day and it would have been a bit of a piss take if we were basically just one day behind and we could have all got out and then we didn't because, yeah. Uh, anyway, it, it, <laughs> we did get out. So. But here we are. Here we are. In Georgetown on the 6th of December. Yeah, it all went well. Yeah. God's been on our side. How was your first helicopter flight? It was amazing. Yeah, it was It was totally surreal. Um, I think one of the most powerful moments for me through the entire thing was the moment when suddenly, and this was just ridiculous luck, the helicopter came in and as it got close the clouds all just lifted and then the sky was blue and we could suddenly first time that morning see everything 
and then you just heard these uh, chopper blades coming across, it got louder and louder and louder. And then suddenly after, you know, being stuck together for a whole month, this chopper touches down with, with different people in it. And you're just kind of overwhelmed because you, you've been so used to the same people to being stuck in this bubble. And then some, you know, disgustingly clean looking people <laughs> get out of the helicopter and it's you to get out of there. It's, it's crazy. And yeah, when it, uh, we got in and when it started to rise into the air, it was, yeah, it, it was weird just flying away from, from everything that we'd done. And, you know, we got a last glimpse of Arima before it got back into the clouds. And then that's that. It's just a memory. You know, probably won't ever see it again. No. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. How did you feel getting back to this hotel? Um, it was it was pretty weird, actually. Because when I left here, there were so many, you know, so many mixed emotions going around. Like, there was definitely an element of what I got myself into. Because um, it was all sounding very, very serious and I didn't have a clue how I was going to react to any of the situations and I I was very concerned about, like Leo gave me this opportunity without really knowing me and it was it was a risk for him, it could have all, I could have been totally hopeless <laughs> I think I wasn't completely hopeless but I, you know I really didn't want to let him down after he'd, after he'd done all that. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of things going through my head. And to step back into this hotel after the whole trip going really so incredibly well, it's the best I could have hoped for. Um, yeah, it was just weird. And so and also, you know, the, the obvious, just getting back to, you know, being driven around in a car. We got a taxi from the airport to here. Hadn't been in the car for a month. Hadn't seen other people apart from a few of the locals at Philippi, uh, we can go and eat in the restaurant and I haven't got to cook it, I haven't got to boil any water, you know, the plates are all clean, um, I can have a shower, stuff like that, it was snap back to reality. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe it, you snap back and <clears throat> I often struggle with the coming home side of it, which is something I'm like fascinated by generally, but I think people... Or I suspect that often people think that that shower and that first meal and the return to civilization and not having to make coffee is exclusively a joy. Is that the case or is it a mixed bag? No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I, of course, I've never done this before. That's exactly what I thought was going to happen. I was thinking, you know, get back to the hotel. All of these comforts are just going to be like the most ridiculously happy feeling you've ever had. And it wasn't quite that. I mean, yes, I, I was happy, but it's kind of like I got into the room, my hotel room, and the second I was on my own, I was a bit like, what, what do I do? And I was confused as to why I didn't feel as happy as I thought I would. I didn't feel sad, but I was just kind of like a bit lost in a way. And then suddenly I had my phone and it was connected to internet. And I kind of sat on the bed and I was like, oh, I can, I can check messages now. I can reply, I can talk to people. But I almost didn't want to. Like I turned Instagram on and then after 10 seconds turned it off because I didn't want to see any of it and I, I was reluctant to almost reconnect to the rest of the world and you know obviously it was great later on to speak to family again and you know say that everything's gone well and post something online 
Um, but yeah, it's a weird sort of 50-50 feeling of half of you is relieved and happy to be somewhere safe and kind of happy that we've all been through this and, and done it and it's over. But there's definitely another half that, you know, we're only... Yesterday we came back to Georgetown. Yesterday morning we woke up on top of Roraima. And I already kind of miss it. I, I wouldn't necessarily jump into another month right now. But, yeah, it's <laughs> it's not as much of an exclusively happy relief as I thought it would be. But if you got invited on an expedition in January? Yeah, I would. I, I know I'd say yes already. <laughs> it's not a difficult decision to make, is it? Not at all, no. And that it creates complications, you know, for your mm. life because suddenly, or for one's life, because when we experience these things, they're such profound, incredible experiences that it can be quite hard to go back from. You just yeah. crave it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, like I said, I've only done this one, but it's uh, it's so different to like, you know, you could go on a sport climbing holiday for a month and, you know, your life's a bit different for a month and you come back and it wouldn't affect you. But something like this... Um, it kind of alters your mindset in so many ways and alters your priorities in so many ways and makes you appreciate things that you never even thought of before and aspects of life. And uh, I think we all had moments of thinking time on this trip where, uh, I can only speak for myself, but um, you kind of sit there and reflect on, on things you'd done and things you'd said in your real life and sort of think to yourself oh that was stupid why didn't I just make that decision immediately and it all becomes so obvious to you um, and I think the only way you can get into that mindset is to be in such a different situation for such a long time it's, again it's hard to explain unless you've kind of been there but yeah <laughs> you just said in your real life yeah was this not your real life isn't It feels like a different life. It's, it's weird. There's, there's a total offset of... There's my life in the UK where I go to the climbing wall every day and I worry about stupid things. And then there's my life over here where my priorities are totally different. My thought processes are totally, processes are totally different. And... I just feel like my outlook is, is is not the same at all as it is when I'm at home. So, you you lead me naturally onto <laughs> my last question, which is the first question I asked you after describing where we are was what's changed based on the podcast that you talked about, uh, the podcast that you did when we left and the one at Wailang. So, not what has changed since then, but what has changed for you and how have you changed as a result of this expedition? Uh, oh God, that's a difficult one to answer. Um, hmm. I mean, like I said, my a lot of my thought processes and outlooks towards things have changed, I think, significantly from when I left the UK to now that I'm returning in a couple of days. Um, 
I don't know. I think there's this... I've got this kind of drive now to do... Like, before I came here, obviously, I'm a climber. That's what I do. And the things I wanted to do were all pretty close to home. It was all just about climbing. But now, having been here, I'm kind of like, oh, well, actually, maybe I don't want to go to a gritstone crag. Maybe I want to go and spend a month in Norway or Patagonia or some, you know, I want to go and see more of the world and see what's on offer because I've, I've seen this and now why don't I go and see that? Um, and I never, it almost, not that I didn't want to do it before, but I didn't think about that stuff a lot and it didn't seem possible. And I didn't know if I could physically or mentally do it. But now I know that I can. It's almost like, oh, well, this door's now open. And what are you going to do with it? Um, and, and yeah, just things like, you know, the stupid, like, stuff that you worry about when you're at home, like silly relationship issues and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they all just seem so irrelevant because I'm kind of like, well, whatever happens, at least you're not... 100 kilometres into the jungle, freezing your ass off on a port ledge. Um, yeah, it's... Yeah, definitely a change of mindset. Yeah. <clears throat> and what advice would you give um, the Anna that existed on November 4th, 2019? <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, just go for it. Don't worry about things that you can't change. Um, and if an opportunity is offered to you, then you need to say yes to it and see where it goes. I think that you and Troy and Edward have all proven that on this trip. Yeah, I think so, definitely. Definitely. Ace, right. Until next time. <laughs>
And so very finally, with the credits and housekeeping side of things, uh, the podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Cargriffin in association with Sidetrack Magazine and Candle Mountain Festival. And keep your eyes peeled for some exciting announcements involving both of those partners in the new year. If you want to get in touch, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or send us a message on Instagram.